Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Welcome to CounterPoints, everyone. It's been an extremely busy 24 hours for breaking news. So shout out to our team for being so uh, easily adapt for e- adapting so easily Very to nimble. this wild N- news cycle. Nimble, yeah, absolutely. Nimble producers. Nimble. How are you doing, Ryan? Well, Kanye is just blow- blowing everything up, huh? Kanye yeah. is blowing everything up. We're actually going to talk about Kanye. We are. We're going to get to Kanye. We're going to get to the Georgia runoff. We're going to talk a little bit about Disney. We're covering all kinds of things on today's show. The Oath Keepers. Uh, we're We've talking got some about... Afghanistan news later in the show. That's right. We'll have a guest on the Afghanistan news, somebody with very direct knowledge of the negotiations over there. Uh, but let's start with the rail strike. Huge news on this front, breaking in the afternoon on Thursday when the Senate actually voted. Right on the negotiation that Crystal and Sager have been covering very closely along with Max and other good folks. Um, but this is, we want to start actually with Assad. So we're going to play the video right now. Here's A1 and we'll react to it. On this vote, the yeas are 52, the nays are 43, under the previous order requiring 60 votes for the adoption for the adoption of this concurrent re- resolution. The concurrent resolution is not agreed to. So that needed 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. That was to include seven days of paid sick leave in the contract that they're forcing on the workers and the companies through the Railway Labor Act. It's the Bernie Sanders amendment Mm -hmm. to the negotiation that Joe Biden punted to Congress in accordance with the Rail Act of, what, 1923? Right, right. It's because you had 50 years of, uh, of, labor, of labor disputes on railways that led to basically wars, mm-hmm. uh, which were always crushed violently um, by the federal government, uh, you know, very, you know ne- never, never leading throughout the 1860s and 70s any significant gains for unions. It was just absolute nightmare. They, the fe- federal troops, local cops, a vi- vicious campaign of suppression. Uh, but it didn't stop workers from continuing to organize and, and push for their rights. And so uh, eventually, 
in yeah in the 1920s they ended up, they passed this Rail, railway labor act which says that if the if the bosses won't agree to a contract uh, the president and congress can come in and implement it a uh, thing I learned today is that actually it was written by uh, union lawyers mm-hmm. back in the 20s. Like mm-hmm. th- this was this was actually written as a union-friendly law, uh, s- but today it, it operates as a stick that the companies can use against the bargaining of the workers to say, "Look, here's what we're going to offer, and if you don't like it, we're just going to have the president and Congress, you know, basically put whatever deal, uh, you know." force whatever deal we can down your throats. Now, so what the unions have done is they try to get close to President Biden and they thought, okay, well, Biden's our man, lunch pail Joe. He's going to he's going to be the one who's going to actually force a better deal right. on on us and on them because it, it it's a forcing, but it can it can go either way. That didn't quite work. Biden made their deal a little bit better. He gave them one personal one paid personal day, yeah. which bizarrely, wildly was a red line mm-hmm. for these uh, for these railroad companies. They did not want to give a single day because their whole and we, and we've talked to Max Alvarez a lot about this. Their entire business strategy relies on bringing down the number of staff on a train to as little as humanly possible. So therefore, it's if called somebody, PSR. Yeah, if somebody calls out their entire national system like falls apart. It's a strategy that has them at literal record record profits. Mm -hmm. And they, on the one hand, want to say that the record profits have nothing to do with labor. They're just about our investments. But on the other hand, they have cut something like 30% of rail workers in recent years Mm -hmm. uh, in order to optimize the uh, the how much weight carry more freight with fewer employers employees and fewer cars so it's explicitly part of a strategy that makes it more vulnerable to if somebody has to call out sick they actually require you to use a vacation day and you have to know like 30 days in advance right, that you're going to you be sick right. right so if you make a doctor's appointment you have to plan it for one of your days off or you have to, if you get down to something, you get really sick, you have to plan it for a vacation. It obviously doesn't make any sense. A lot of workers said it contributed to the spread of COVID on the rail because people mm-hmm. were not right. calling out sick because yeah. you can't plan to get COVID. Right. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But that's why when they have record profits, they've been happy, for instance, to agree to these pay raises. I think the pay raises are still sort of unreasonably meager, 24% over five years in an environment with high inflation. Inflation isn't very meaningful, but... The one, their red line is the paid sick days because we, while they can funnel their profits to down to right. employees, what they don't want to do is have to hire more people because that's where the costs are really going to go back up. Right. And so there are a whole bunch of interesting political dynamics to sort sort through here. Uh, let's let's start with this, that actually the fight is not over. And this is some uh, some breaking news we can bring to, you know, exclusive to counterpoints. That, so a, a, a union source tells me that the next phase of this fight uh, for them is going to be to pressure uh, the Biden administration to include railroad workers in the upcoming executive order that uh, requ- that requires that federal contractors uh, pay $15 an hour, all these different things, that requires paid sick leave. So it would require 56 hours of paid sick leave, which would be seven, eight-hour shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2015, believe this or not, when uh, Barack Obama implemented uh, this, this paid sick leave for federal contractors, they specifically cut railroad workers out of it right. because of this system right. and because of the way, the way that the railroad companies you know, ha- have their fangs into, into both parties. And so 
what they're now pushing the Biden administration to do is to roll that back. Yeah. Say no, no exception anymore mm -hmm. for railroad workers. That brings us to the question of the strategy over the last few days, because I think learning that actually illuminates a little bit why they went for this, the fight that they did. And so what, what have you, what, so, I mean, what, what have you seen about, like, what are you curious about how, like, this, this has unfolded on the Hill? Yeah, it's been interesting because it ended up only getting, the vote was, final vote was 52 to 43. One of the first Republican senators, probably the first Republican senator to come out against Biden's negotiation that punted uh, the, the mm -hmm. bill to Congress was Senator Marco Rubio. He ultimately was followed by Ted Cruz, who mm -hmm. said the complaints of the- Yeah, let's put, let's put a- uh, yeah, there yeah, you can see it right there. there yeah. Yep, uh, that's a tweet from More Perfect Union. Um, all vote that says all Democrats voted yes except Mansion. All Republicans voted no except for six. So you had Mike Braun of Indiana, Ted Cruz of Texas, who said that the union demands were quote quite reasonable. Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, John Kennedy, and Marco Rubio himself all voted with the Democrats on this, but that still leaves eight votes short. Five senators did not vote. Uh, three Democrats. Three Democrats. So leave them five short. It was. Warnock, Chris Murphy, um, and someone uh, someone else. Yeah. But they're all the, yes votes. That's what happens. Yeah, that, right. that's not entirely unusual. If they know a vote isn't going to pass, they just don't necessarily right. break away from what they're doing to come in and vote on it. But it's interesting that no Republicans voted for this in the House, I believe. Three, I think. Actually. Three, yeah, it was yeah. three. But, but it they're was probably a, all go, outgoing. Yeah, it was a yeah. small. It wasn't like a. There was no significant Republican coalition. Right. More like support in the Senate. Senate side. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Which is super interesting. Um, and it, Marco Rubio kind of couched it in free market language, which is also interesting to me too, because he hasn't been afraid. And how do you pull that off? Well, he. It was. It was interesting. I actually can pull up the press release, but. Um, What's interesting is, to me is that you have a lot of employees who have quit working in these conditions. Like they have just walked out and quit. Mm. And what's right. happening is Congress, because of the act from the 1920s, is protecting the large rail conglomerates it's basically protecting their monopoly power right. and protecting them against the forces of the free market mm -hmm. by allowing the free Congress, labor market. Yeah, okay. exactly by allowing Congress to step in. And that's I don't know if that's the argument that Rubio was going for, but from my perspective, there are a lot of senators who I think really should have gone for this bill. Um, yeah, so here's what Marco Rubio said. By now, everyone should realize nothing good happens when Congress gets involved in issues best left to the private sector. So his argument against it was that this is Congress overstepping the boundaries of the private sector to negotiate between the companies right. and the unions. Right. And so uh, uh, <laughs> let's put up A3 also, speaking of Ted Cruz. Uh, so so Ted, Ted Cruz, uh, you can see on the screen here if you're watching. It's, it's pretty hard to see, but basically what you're going to see is Ted Cruz wander up uh, to where Bernie Sanders is sitting at the very top <laughs> and then end up giving him a fist bump. After, after voting yes. After voting Democrats. yes to yeah. go with the workers. So you've got uh, Cruz and the, and the Democratic Socialists you know, Solidarity. Being, all, being all buddy buddy together. No, uh, but that's the, the only way to look at that, I think, truly is glass half full. Because uh, 10 years ago, this vote is totally different. Maybe you get Lindsey Graham, maybe you get John Kennedy or something like that, although unlikely. Um, but 
the only way to look at that, I don't mean in general the negotiations for the workers. I mean the fact that where this vote ended up falling, um, that's, that's a glass half full uh, that you are able to peel off that many Republicans. Yeah. And that's a low bar. I understand that's a low bar. Um, and the Republican Party, there's an open question as to whether there's durability to this trajectory. They keep going in this direction. So if this vote were to happen 10 years from now, do you have six Republicans or 10 Republicans? Do you have 20 Republicans? I don't know. Um, but at least by the standards of somebody like Sager or myself that's on the sidelines and the, has that vantage point, uh, that's a, that is an improvement from the low baseline that the Republican has been at and the Republicans have been at in the past. And, and having 52 votes in the Senate, that means you have a bipartisan majority. You've got six Republicans and a bunch of Democrats. That gives them actual real momentum mm-hmm. when they now go to the White House. And I think that what I was saying earlier, I think that illuminates the strategy. And it also puts uh, kind of the, the Progressive Caucus and the squad's kind of decision-making around strategy over the last few days in a different light. And we'll, we'll see how successful they are to get Biden. But they certainly have, have raised attention on, on this issue and have shown that there's bipartisan support for it. So not to dwell too long on the squad here, but uh, every issue in the House now immediately online becomes a question of, you know, did squads sell out yep. or not? And so the immediate, and the immediate answer is almost, from, from everybody, is almost yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, look, in this case, I don't think that they did. So on Monday, uh, and I know that people, it, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier to just lie and be like, yeah, squads, a bunch of sellouts. Yeah. But, here, but here, here are the facts of what happened here. So on Monday, after Biden says, we're going to force this deal on the workers, Pelosi tells our caucus, we're going to force this deal on the workers. There will be no changes allowed. We're just going to vote on it. And she had endless votes right. for this thing. I think it ended up, she ended up getting 290 votes. It, it wasn't close because you have so many Republicans who are like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm fine uh, averting this strike. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get blamed for this, you know, economic catastrophe. Right. And I don't care about these workers. So fair. So there then becomes a public push by Jamal Bowman to say, if we're going to vote on this, let's at least add seven sick days mm-hmm. to it. And there becomes enough pressure that in negotiations, Pelosi says, okay, if everybody agrees to vote for this, then I will, I'll allow it. Mm-hmm. I'll, and, but I'm going to put up two votes. So the one vote on the tentative agreement, the second vote on the, on the seven sick days. Mm-hmm. What that means is that they both go together over to the Senate. And then if the Senate rejects the seven sick days, they can still pass the original one and send it off. Yeah to Biden. Otherwise, they would have to just basically pass the tentative agreement back to the House, and then the House passes it. But that's the flaw in, like, believing that the squad had leverage here. They passed it with 80 votes today. Mm -hmm. The Senate did. So the Senate could then just send it back to the House. And if the squad votes no, it still passes with 285 votes in the House. So you don't have any leverage other than public pressure. So they brought shame and they bought, brought public pressure. Right. So they, 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 they win the vote in the House. Knowing the symbolism would be what was important. Right. So, the, right. so they win On the vote in the House. doomed bill. Then it goes over to the Senate and there's a, a day or two of debating. Uh, you know, you, you, and then you hear from Hawley, you hear from Rubio, yeah. Ted Cruz votes. And then, once, and then it fails. And then you say, look, look how much support we have over here. Mm-hmm. Now we, we want Biden to add us into this executive order. It would be... It'd be pretty impressive negotiating, actually, if they wind up with all of the raises and also the sick days. Yeah. Because if you were going to get the sick days, they'd say, well, that's coming out of your raises. 
So if they wind up with both, that that'd be that'd be that'd be awfully interesting. Some senators got interested in the last minute in this idea of passing a bill that would kick the can down the road for another sixty or ninety days for a, a quote cooling off period, cooling down period, something like that that would allow the unions to continue negotiating with the companies with President Biden and Marty Walsh. Um, obviously, some all Democrats and Republicans sort of rejected that uh, for what we have by this vote at the end of the day. Um, but it's interesting to see how I mean basically. If Ted Cruz is saying that the demands are, quote, quite reasonable, this should be something that gets the vote of not just every Democrat, but every Republican as well. And Republicans are sort of saying we shouldn't have Congress butting in um, to these negotiations. That's a fig leaf. That's uh, th- there are some people maybe who believe that sincerely, that this is the business um, of, you know, they maybe disagree with the original act that this should be right. the business of uh, the negotiators, that Congress shouldn't step in. Um, but at the end of the day, these, this is people who are worked like dogs asking for paid sick leave. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah, and, and Ted Cruz is somebody who you know, knows which way the political winds are blowing, right? Like, yeah. So for him to sense, I want to be on the side of the workers here, suggests that at least there is that energy on the Republican side that People feel like there's some benefit there. No, and I mean he's also somebody who's who's generally been uh, a proponent of like I'm sure he's taken lots and lots of corporate money, um, just like you know Lindsey Graham has, just like Mike Braun has. I'm sure just like John Kennedy has, um, and you know they're they're saying it's in my interest politically right, exactly. or because you know maybe they sincerely believe this. Um, they're saying it's in my interest to to take this vote, um, and the fact that you know again like I think it's it's a sign of progress and a good direction for the Republican. Party, but it is pitiful that you can only get six Republicans in the Senate on a vote like this. When they'll they'll gladly vote for crony subsidies, they'll do that all mm-hmm. all day. But this, oh no no no, Congress shouldn't be involved. And I guess the, the, the last point I'd make on the on the squad side is for people who think that the squad made a mistake in promising to vote yes on the tentative agreement in order to get the seven day uh, sick vote. Like, would the unions, and by the way, the unions were pushing for that strategy. That, that was the strategy that they wanted at the last minute. That wasn't, uh, you know, because Biden forced their hand. They're like, well, we, okay, this is the best we can do at this moment. So if they didn't do that, if they said, no, unions, I don't think that this is the right play. We're actually just going to vote no. We're not going to force, it's against our principles to force an agreement on a union. So we're, all, we're voting no, and we're not going to put this, the seven-day uh, sick leave bill up for a vote because that would sully our, our conscience because that would that that makes us complicit in breaking this strike in, mm-hmm. in enforcing a contract on on workers who've who've rejected it so if they don't if they don't do that then this week it just cruises through right 285 votes in the house 80 votes in the senate it goes it goes to the white house he signs it strike is strike is averted and then the union comes to biden and says, "Hey, we want to be, uh, you know, we we want to be written into this executive order." It's like, well, wh- where's your momentum here? Where's your where, where's the fight? Like, wh- why why do you have capital at this moment mm-hmm. that we're going to spend on you? Mm-hmm. And I think that they built up capital yeah. through this week yeah. that has in that has I think substantially increased their chances of getting into this executive order. And if Joe Biden pushed really, 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 really hard for paid sick leave, the companies would have to take a la- an L on it. Yeah, 
they absolutely would have to take it out. Write it in the executive order. And then then, you, then the Supreme Court could say that they can't do it, but they've already said that the other executive order is legit, so. Yeah, if they wanted to push on this, it, it's not, they're in the, the ball is in their court. The ball is in the court of Joe Biden and the government negotiators in this case. Yeah. It's not in the court of the companies because they don't want to go into uh, a strike situation. They don't want to go into a shutdown situation at all. Yeah, no, they don't at all. All right, in, uh, in some Kanye West news, Ugh. so so Kanye Kanye West made an appearance on uh, a, a show by a man who is no longer, I think, allowed to appear on YouTube. Is that right? I, I believe that is right. Yeah, I'm on, actually going to talk a little bit most, about that kind of thing in my monologue. In most places, in fact, is Alex Jones. So Kanye West, I think he did what three hours or something on on Alex Jones. Whatever it is, it was long, and I was taping a podcast and getting pings from mm. you guys sending me these clips, and I went back and watched them as it had happened. Like, you guys were watching this stuff in real time. Yeah. I went back and watched them, and just, it was a, a real journey <laughs> from start to finish. Yeah, and, and, and we should start with some significant disclaimers here that Alex Jones, uh, A, has been, has lost multiple libel judgments. Yeah against him uh, for defamation. Yes. Uh, and in order to pr prove defamation in this country, you have to have engaged in the most kind of reckless type of behavior. Super high bar. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, har it's, hard. it's hard to lose a defamation case yep. as, as, a, as anybody. As in a this, broadcaster. As yeah. a broadcaster in this country, and he's lost many. So the, the point here is not that Alex Jones is some type of a, a credible figure here. The, the point, in, in a, as, as we play some of these, is that even Alex Jones in some of these clips is like, whoa, this guy, this guy is going too far. And this is, this is a national story in, like, in, in, in a bunch of different senses. One, it, it led to, bizarrely enough, did you see this? Uh, I forget which Republican, one of the ma major kind of Republican Twitter accounts had tweeted something like, House GOP. Kanye, yeah. Kanye Elon, Elon, and Trump, Trump or something. Yeah. They just deleted that. And they hadn't like, deleted it prior. This right. was before like, okay, his you know descent into anti-Semitic madness. They had not deleted that tweet. And so now, finally, I thought it was an odd place to draw the line. If you're going to draw is, the line. Now, let's, let's... Let's show where Republicans drew the line. Yeah, to, yeah, to give viewers... But, the Twitter, the, yes. whoever operates yes. the House GOP Twitter account. Uh, to, so to give uh, everyone a, a flavor, because it's hard actually to encapsulate in a segment here exactly how bananas and awful this uh, conversation was, let's start with B1. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I... I see, I, I see good things about Hitler also. The Jew, I love everyone, and Jewish people are not gonna tell me, you can love um, you know, us, and you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts, and you can love what we're, you know, what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician. You can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good, and I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. Really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I think, Ryan, we should just roll into uh, B3, which is another shot. So keep the ball rolling on these clips while we're at it. I don't like the word evil next to Nazis. I think we need to look at. 
Oh my goodness! Just because you don't like one group doesn't mean the other. But look, I fine. love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. <laughs> oh man! Well, I have to disagree with that. All right, so we can put B two up on the screen. I do have one reaction that um, I, I think might be this. This might be one thing that is either controversial or maybe a take that others don't have. I'm actually glad that. Kanye West is is being confronted by Tim Pool, is being confronted by Alex Jones in public view so that he's not saying this insane stuff to other powerful people in private, that he's not putting his money privately into insane places, and that we can see clearly the contrast. So when the media tries to shut down Alex Jones, for instance, and no legacy journalist wants to talk to Alex Jones, you end up with him never being confronted in person and forced like he was in the Sandy Hook case. And it crumbled, right? His narrative crumbled when he was forced mm -hmm. to confront the alternative argument. You can see with Kanye West here, I actually feel like through this segment, I got a lot of insight into where his ideology, this ideology of anti-Semitism that particularly that he's been espousing, I can sort of see the intellectual well that it sprung from, which is a poison well and it's terrible, but it's, it's good to force him to explain himself and, and go to the logical conclusions of these awful, uh, awful arguments. Um, and, and to be confronted by Alex Jones and Tim Pool, I think, has showed a helpful contrast to anybody who might be like, hey, everybody's shutting Kanye down. That must mean he's on to something. He's not. Yeah, let, yeah, let, let's play the third one. The Nazis, in my view, were thugs that shut people down to a lot of really bad things. But well, they did good things, too. We're going to stop dissing the Nazis all the time. Okay. We're, we're going to get to that. Like, is he serious? He is, because he then said, he, he then went into full Holocaust denial mode, uh, denying the six million number, which is like, I mean, flagrant. <laughs> and he seems to be, serious is an interesting word. He's clearly in, in the throes of a, a mental illness, right. um, and that's extremely sad. And it's playing out in public view. It's hurting him. It's hurting his family. Um, and the bottom line is that one of the most popular artists, one of the most famous celebrities of this century, is now espousing outright Nazism, essentially. No, not even essentially. Like, it's like, yeah. Yeah, no, outright Nazism, um, essentially for the whole, in front of the they whole world. The highways? The microphone, mm. I mean, it. I mean, the highway is not that great anyway. <laughs> so like, that's all, you, that's all you've got. And the microphone, I mean, microphones, I think, I think we would have a microphone without the Nazis. I just. Not that I'm gonna engage, like in the point by point. Of, <laughs> Well, no, but you know what, though? Someone is. Like, someone who can can go through the history and, like, has the time to do it and will do it is going to go through the history so that when people are curious as to, you know, Kanye West is being mocked by all of the people that I distrust and all of the people I hate, well, they can see these point-by-point -point refutations and show the, the deeply anti-Semitic well that they spring from. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a good thing. I mean— I think it's ultimately a good thing. And I, I think, I, you know, at a certain point, it has to stop. At a certain point, you've heard enough, right? At a certain point, he, he said all that he can say. We understand. Um, but I, I think this was, uh, you know, a step towards showing exactly how gross this is. I, and I hope people connect it to just how ludicrous it is. And rather than, my big fear would be that people would see this and say, well, I, I love Kanye. Mm-hmm. 
And so then they then they like go down a rabbit hole themselves and and come out the end uh, with, with you know shrouded in all these like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. That 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 to me is the biggest concern about the platforming of this. But I hope that I hope that it goes the other way. Yeah. That the sunlight kind of exposes it for the evil and the insanity that it, that it is, and that and that people who would have been tempted otherwise are like, oh, okay, that. That actually seems crazy. Yeah. Like he, he's up on a ski mask. Like right. when you can spout off. So I saw somewhere that Nick Fuentes, somebody had looked at the increase in his Rumble views uh, before Kanye started aligning with him and with Maya Milo at Yiannopoulos and after, and there was a big spike. I think some of that comes from like disproportionate media obsession, but not in this case. I think it's it's very clearly. Um, Kanye West, like you, you blame Kanye West for that bump because again, one of the most successful artists of the, this century suddenly starts hanging out with a guy named Nick Fuentes. People are going to go and, and check out what mm-hmm. he's saying, and you know, just statistically, some people are going to say, especially on those videos where you just have one crazy person talking into a microphone um, for a really long time, when you just have one. A bigoted person talking into a microphone for a really long time and just spouting off all this nonsense about highways and microphones, um, and, and you don't have people being right. like, "Hey, wait, 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 wait a second, what book did you read that in?" Um, and then you sort of everything can unravel. That's, I hope it that will. is, you know, genuinely uh, a, a a very very serious offense uh, on Kanye West's behalf, just not alone, not just what Kanye West himself has said, but by boosting the profile of people like Fuentes. I guess we'll get to find out what the repercussions are going to be. Yes, we will. Let's move on to Georgia, where the uh, Senate runoff is coming this Monday, no, t- uh, Tuesday, December fi- December sixth. Yeah. Uh, so the, say the, next day. The, the big. So we'll, we'll get to some early voting numbers uh, in a moment. But to start with, uh, the the funniest news out of this race, which has been funny all the way through, <laughs> has been Herschel Walker uh, straight up admitting that he does not live in Georgia. Uh, during the campaign. And so K-File, uh, Andrew Kaczynski's team over at, at CNN, uh, got uh, obtained audio of him addressing uh, the Georgia Republicans. We can put, uh, put C1 up here. Um, what is C? Is C1 the SOT or is C1? The, yeah. Yep, C1's so, the SOT. Let's, let's play this audio uh, that, that CNN uh, obtained. Of, of This is Walker addressing Georgia College Republicans during the campaign for Senate in Georgia, which is a key <laughs> key point to, to bear in mind as you listen to this. Everyone asked me, why did I decide to run for a Senate seat? Because to be honest with you, this is never something I ever, ever, ever thought about what I ever did. And that's the honest truth. But uh, as I was sitting in my home in Texas, I was sitting in my home in Texas, and I was seeing what was going on in this country. You know, I live in Texas. Yeah, I went down to the board off and on sometimes. So K-File also reported, according to publicly available tax records that Andrew and K-File reviewed, Walker's listed to get a homestead tax exemption in Texas yeah, in C2. 2022. This is C2, which saves him uh, approximately 1500 bucks. Not a big deal in the <laughs> net worth of Herschel Walker, um, but still shows that he he's claiming to get a tax exemption um, 
that his primary residence is in Texas. And what I heard Walker say in that clip is lived in Texas. It sounds like he says, I've, I lived in Texas, not I live in Texas. I listened to it a couple of times. Either way, the tax exemption totally, it doesn't matter if he said live or lived, if he's claiming the tax exemption for a primary residence. I, I heard live because I, it, to me, it, the context fit he, where he was saying, like, I live in Texas, and it, if it was hard to hear, he said, I live in Texas, I've gone down to the border a cu- couple of yeah. times, and I can tell you that the border's a terrible mess. So he's, like, using his authority as a Texan, which he'd been for 20 years, uh, to, to then have a claim about his position on the border. I don't, I don't think this hurts Walker that much, except maybe it a few people who might have otherwise like come out to vote are like, you know what, skip this, this is so absurd. I'm not even gonna bother doing this. But, but like if you're if this is the thing that gets you off the walker train, <laughs> like well, you know, he's like, uh, he, he is to Georgia what Marion Barry was to D.C. He's a Georgian for life. <laughs> yes. Well, he also is a Georgian for life. You know, he's born in northern Georgia. Yeah. Uh, he was a high school football star. He was in a star at Georgia. So, like, th- those things, I think, <laughs> it, in some ways make you a Georgian for life. Like, Dr. Oz... This doesn't is know anything was, about Pennsylvania. We were, we were, when we were talking about this segment earlier this week, it was an interesting, we were thinking it was an interesting contrast with what happened in Pennsylvania because it was absolutely, hugely damaging to the Oz campaign that he was not a Pennsylvanian, that he lived in New Jersey. Everyone sort of knew that. He didn't have any of the, like, real hallmarks of Pennsylvania residency. Um, didn't seem to be all that familiar with the state. He missed. He got the melody wrong, as Ryan reminded me on Fly Eagles oh, Fly <laughs> during the debate. Uh, he he just was out of place, and it felt exploitive and opportunistic. And uh, what was funny is that Dr. Oz tried to like he he sprinted away from that right. Like he didn't want to talk about it at all. Instead of just kind of owning it and being like, yeah, well, you know, I'm a super millionaire. I don't live here. He, spe- he, spe- he spelled his alleged town wrong. Right. Dr. Oz did. Right. It was his in-law's house or something. Herschel Walker is just like, hey, I've lived in Texas for a long time. He's claiming he's, <laughs> he's getting the tax like, exemption. The, the best case you could make for him would be, I was in my Texas home. And so what he's, that's a rich person who has like eight different homes. And you gotta, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. but then when you take the homestead <laughs> or primary home exemption, yeah. You kind of un- undermine yourself there. I want to put C4 up on the screen. Ryan, this is something you flagged and you've been looking at over the course of the last week and, and have found some, I think, interesting data from it. This is early voting um, in the Republican and Democratic side in Georgia uh, general elections and runoffs over the last four years. What did what stood out to you here? Yeah, so if you want, if you want to follow along at home, uh, this is targeterly.targetsmart.com. This is a, a Democratic data firm. So they, they, they pull together uh, lots of kind of consumer data. They, they pile it on top of voter registration data and, vo- and voter information. And they were the ones that really nailed the midterms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, were, they were getting made fun of uh, as mongers of uh, hopium and copium <laughs> all throughout the election because uh, they were saying, look, what we're seeing does not comport with a red wave. Uh, so what, what they're seeing right now, uh, so far in the runoff, and this, this is updated as of uh, uh, just now. It's 1,145,000 votes, which is a ton. So because if, if you look at the runoff from 2021, uh, that was a total of about 4.5 million votes. So in other words, in only a few days, a quarter of the number of people 
uh, who voted in the Warnock uh, and Ossoff uh, runoff elections uh, two years ago have already voted in, in this one. Now it's, a month, it's truncated. They had an extra month. Uh, so n- now you're going to have a ton of turnout you know, pushed onto, uh, onto election day. Now, a key thing to remember is that young people um, tend to vote very late. Mm-hmm. Like they're, and so de- de- that's why Democrats actually ended up as, at, do Republicans, as it went along. That's the other thing. Yes. Republicans tend to vote late right. too. So, right. So both of those, so the, that, the young people and the Republicans voting late balances, out, balances it out. The remaining votes should lean Republican. Mm-hmm. But because young people also vote late, that that hurts uh, that hurts Democrats. And here's an interesting thing to keep in mind: Tuesday night, the next time we see you here, the election will have been over. But uh, oh, actually, no, that's not true. We're filling in next week. Right. Um, but the interesting thing to watch for is that young people will vote uh, po- possibly by mail on the last day. So that's where, as you're looking for returns, Republicans may vote in person last day in higher numbers, whereas young people may vote by mail in higher numbers, and that will affect the numbers as they're coming in. So according to the numbers that are up so far that Target Smart has here, so it's 54-38, it's breaking down. They don't know who they voted for, but 54%, 54 54.1% have been Democrats, uh, and 37.8% have been Republicans, which is what about a sixteen-point lead? It's a so, huge lead. The, the Republicans, like I said, as you know, on election day, that's a more Republican turnout because they think voting by mail is uh, you know fraudulent and all the ballots are going to wind up in Venezuela. <laughs> uh, and so, but to overcome with only three quarters of the vote left to overcome a sixteen-point gap uh, is going to be tough with a lot of the youth vote still out because they've, they've also been able to model that the, the youth vote that's in so far is significantly lower than the youth vote that voted overall in Georgia. Right. So that means a lot of them are holding on to their ballots. Yeah. Um, and, you know, keeping the momentum for a runoff is obviously always a, a very right. difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, but Republicans are, so a good example is Nevada. On election night, you were saying, you had sources in Nevada saying, Laxalt takes this if there's no snow. Right. And then there's snow on election yes. day. And Republicans, according to that theory, turn out in lower numbers because mm-hmm. of the snow on election day. And so a lot of people on the right have spent, you know, basically the last month saying, Early voting is not going anywhere. Adapt or die. Yeah, do it. Uh, Last point on this, then we move on. Um, For Democrats, they're 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 a pretty united party at this point. Like you know, the center, the center right, center left, the far left. They all like Warnock. Like the Republicans in Georgia, not so much. So where where does not having Kemp on the ballot? What is, not, what is not having Kemp on the ballot or Raffensperger or these other, other Republican kind of establishment figures that the suburban Republicans like liked? And then let's say they come out, they voted for them, and then they're like, well, I like Walker better than Warnock. So they, they cast their vote for Walker. But without them being on the ballot this time, will, do you think there's going to be less Republican turnout as a, re, as a result from the people who are like, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because comparing the like, 
enthusiasm and momentum for one candidate in a general as opposed to another candidate in the general and then comparing it to one candidate in a runoff, it's just hard because it's a di- it's probably going to be a different sample, basically, of people who are coming out. I mean, certainly it's going to be a different sample of people who are coming out. The question, though, is whether Walker voters, there are enough like enthusiastic Walker voters. That's one thing that I would be looking mm-hmm. at um, to to kind of re- remember Alabama in, uh, with the Roy Moore vote. Um, there were a lot of people... And, and he obviously ultimately lost to Doug Jones, but there were a lot of people who, uh, you know, were coming out, might be Richard Shelby voters, Katie Britt type voters, but were coming out and saying, we're just going to, we're coming out, we don't want to do this, mm-hmm. but because of abortion, uh, because of that specific issue, we're coming out to to vote for Roy Moore. Um, and obviously, Herschel Walker and Roy Moore are very different characters, but it's a. I think it's kind of similar in the respect that you have the high-profile, high-stakes type of one-on-one dynamic, um, and maybe that's enough to energize single-issue Republicans to go support uh, Walker in high numbers. And we'll see. Yeah, it's a tough one. Let's move on to Disney. Actually, speaking of Georgia, Disney has a great relationship with the state of, Do- of Georgia because of the crony subsidies that they dish out. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, CEO here, Bob Iger, past CEO, now CEO. Once again, they ousted the other Bob last week um, after disappointing earnings uh, over the last quarter, even though they had just voted to reinstate him. Now, Bob Iger came out this week and uh, spoke to employees. Chris Rufo got some video of it and posted it to Twitter. So let's go ahead and roll. D1 here. Here's a virtual question. Many cast members had wished that Disney stayed out of politics. Will Disney stay out of making political statements? You know, I think uh, there's a misperception here about what politics is. And I think that some of the subjects that have proven to be controversial as it relates to Disney have been branded political, and I don't necessarily believe they are. I don't think when you are telling stories and attempting to be a good citizen of the world that that's political, just not how I view it. Do I like the company being embroiled in controversy? Of course not. It can be distracting and it can have a negative impact on the company. And to the extent that I can work to kind of quiet things down, I'm going to do that. But I think it's, it's important to put in perspective what some of these subjects are and not just simply brand them political. Okay, so can we put up D3, please? Because a lot of conservatives uh, were, were doing victory lap, taking a victory lap after this, interpreting it as uh, the fact that Bob Iger said, to the extent that I can quiet things down on the political front, I will. They were interpreting that as, as him doing sort of a pivot, a, a pivot from what his predecessor had done when it comes to politics, getting entangled in the fight with Ron DeSantis over his bill um, and, and putting out a couple of movies that inflamed uh, people, sort of Christian groups, conservative groups with uh, LGBT themes. I think what Bob Iger is very clearly saying there, and it's one of the most, one of the biggest problems in our politics right now, as I tweeted, the powerful proponents of this cultural liberalism, cultural progressivism, don't see taking these stances as political. And you probably agree with them on some of those things, like uh, taking a particular stance on LGBT issues as a matter of human rights as opposed to politics. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think human rights are political, and there's really no way to get around that. We've litigated that a million times in our country. And I think what he's saying is actually a great example of why this problem is going to continue to be front and center for Disney, which is that in this country, people cannot 
um, even sort of agree right now on what is basically like what is human rights? What is politics? What is violence? We're we're tussling over that right now, um, and that's going to be a problem going forward. And I th- so, I think it's a f- what you're seeing. I think I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I think it's a function of kind of our society's inability to do normal politics. Agree. Yeah. Like normal politics would be, you know, fighting over the uh, the resources and and the, you know, the distribution of of income, pre post tax. Like who, you know, what 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 tax rate are we going to hit the rich with? Uh, you know, what should be the minimum wage? Uh, you know. You know, we, we feel like child poverty is a problem. We're going to deal with child poverty, and here's how we're going to deal with that. Mm. Like, and, and we're going to have elections. People are going to put up ideas about how we're going to make our country a, a better place for everybody. Uh, those people will get elected. They will pass laws. That will happen. Like, that's what we used to think of as politics. But you know, our, our political system has stripped all of that away from the ballot. Like, you can't vote on those things. There aren't. The there court will decide. The court will decide. Congress uh, fe- won't federal, decide. The Federal Reserve. The president. Will decide. Right. Uh, the, the parliamentarian yeah. will decide. The Department of Education. The, fili- the, fili- the filibuster. Yeah. Like, yes, right. You don't have a pay for it for that. You know, we've run out of time. Like, the system just d- does not deliver the things that voters give law. Uh, lawmakers' mandates to deliver on. And here's another really important point, and, and Stoller has made this about Disney under Bob Iger. Matt Stoller has made this on his Substack, Goliath, which is, uh, or it's called Big, I'm sorry, the book is Goliath, about Bob Iger a lot, which is that he basically, under Iger, he was he was the CEO of Disney for a long time, transformed Disney into like a, a hedge fund with an entertainment, or with hmm. theme parks, um, because what they did was just buy up all of this other stuff, and there was so much consolidation under, under Iger. Similarly, while he was overseeing Disney, they filmed Mulan in Xinjiang, thanked Xinjiang authorities uh, at the end of that film. That is where we know the, the oppression of the Uyghur Muslims is happening. Disney does that. And meanwhile, he says, we're pulling out of Georgia because they, uh, you know, he, he threatens to pull Disney's huge business out of Georgia. They film a lot of stuff there because, as I said earlier, Georgia does give really huge lucrative subsidies to Hollywood. It's, it's ba- Atlanta is basically like L.A. <laughs> um, at this point because it's become so cheap to film there. He said, we're pulling our business out because we don't like this abortion bill that was passed. And he'll happily do the business that he does in China. Now, Ron DeSantis brings up this issue of consolidation and monopoly power, talking about a tussle this week between Elon Musk and Tim Cook, because Tim Cook says, we're gonna, you know, if Elon Musk's free speech stuff goes this way, maybe they don't belong on Apple's app store. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a huge monopoly power that Google and Apple uh, sort of both have. Um, But it relates in the same sense that as DeSantis gets in, Apple right now has people fleeing a Foxconn factory in China because of the zero COVID policy and how like horrible it is to workers. And meanwhile, Tim Cook's going to be like, oh, Elon Musk, he, he sort of wants to bring back these different speech boundaries on Twitter. Maybe we'll take you off the app store. Although, which apparently was made up. Yeah, right, right, right. We didn't. <laughs> it didn't actually happen. Right, but right. But let's pretend that it happened because we all pretended it was happening, and Ron DeSantis responded to it. And I think this is this clip from Ron DeSantis is a great example of the way that our politics has moved away yes. from the actual and into the cultural. Let's mm-hmm. play this. When you also hear reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store, 
because Elon Musk is actually opening it up for free speech and is restoring a lot of accounts that were uh, unfairly and illegitimately suspended for putting out accurate information about COVID. That's like one of the main things that's being reinstated. So many things these experts were wrong at, and you had people on Twitter that were calling that out, and Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And, and, and Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula, and so he's uh, providing free speech. And so if Apple responds to that, uh, by nuking them from, from the App Store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake, and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from, from the United States Congress. Well, what, should, would it merit a response from the United States Congress? <laughs> Are you kidding me? There is a bipartisan bill in Congress that cracks down on exactly the thing that he's talking about yep. that, that Apple is doing. Ron DeSantis has not endorsed this bill. It's not even clear that he's even aware of it. It's, it's, a, it's a huge deal. Uh, Chuck Schumer was protested on Thursday night because Schumer is refusing to bring it to a floor vote. He was protested at a fundraiser on, on Wednesday night. Schumer's daughters work for Facebook and, and Am Microsoft? Amazon, I think. Amazon, okay. Um, and there, I don't know if you saw it this week, there was a, a group that's pushing for Schumer to put this on, on the floor, put out, we don't have it here, but uh, they put out a deep fake with Mark Zuckerberg. Did you see this? Yeah, I did see it. It's kind of disturbing. <laughs> uh, at the end, he says, thank you for helping uh, me and all my friends. And I was like, oh, that's not him. Doesn't <laughs> that's have friends. <laughs> Doesn't have friends. So there's all this pressure being put on Schumer to, to put this on the floor, because if it goes on the floor, Floor, and we've talked about this on the show a bunch. Mm -hmm. Go, if it gets to the floor, in the light of day, it's going to be hard for senators to vote against it. It is hard for Republicans to vote yeah. against it, and it is hard for Democrats to vote against it. And so Ron DeSantis could be putting pressure on Chuck Schumer to put that on the floor because there's an actual thing that could happen to address the thing that he claims he's upset about. But instead, he just wants to have a press conference and, 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 and make a cultural grievance point. Well, if you take Twitter off the App Store, um, be sure be cool if Congress did something about that. It's like, what? You're so close. <laughs> like, you're so close. Apple does indeed have too much power. Like, the fact that they can take people on and off the App Store with, with no check, that they can walk away with 30% of the revenue is absurd. Congress should do something about it. Well, and that's... One of the things here is like DeSantis is the least of the the least of my worries when it comes to this particular bill because obviously he can't vote on it. He has nothing really to do with it. Um, but there are Republicans, I think, that Republicans who who would love talk a really big game about big tech and who understand all of the problems with the fact that Apple and Google wield this much power over the, the app stores. And one really interesting interesting thing Tristan Harris told me on my podcast over at Federalist Radio Hour a couple months ago, he's from the Center for Humane Tech, um, is basically that Apple has so much monopoly power at this point, they could refuse to have apps on their app store that are intentionally addictive beyond reasonable boundaries, right? Like mm -hmm. they could you, they could turn that off with the switch, but all our politics is talking about is culture war stuff, right? Like we are mired in this conversation. It's not to say that the monopoly power isn't important because they the consolidation has allowed them to do all of this different stuff, but it's like we can see the forest for the trees and our politics is operating right now. Like it, it's actually kind of meta, not to, no pun intended, it's kind of meta, right? That the reason we can't have productive policy conversations about this stuff is because what these apps are doing to our political discourse, period. And because our political system doesn't allow democratic participation to result in 
actual things being done, then then you wind up just lobbying Disney to do something, or you lo- you you beg Apple to do something, or you or you buy Twitter. Well, and it's the same thing with Disney buying up um, all of these different places, right? Like Disney, ABC. So that means ESPN. That means Hulu. They have huge stakes, controlling stakes in all of these different places, and that means uh, the same way that you see Facebook snatching up Instagram and snatching up all of these different things as well. Um, what you have is then a very small, a, a much smaller group of people is in charge of way more of our political discourse. And so what they think is going to be the boundaries in a way that, you know, what Bob Iger thinks is, quote, being a good citizen, what Bob Iger thinks is politics, then becomes way more powerful than if Bob Iger is just overseeing theme parks and a film studio. It has way bigger implications because then it trickles down into ESPN, it trickles down into ABC, Good Morning America, Hulu, like all of those things are going to be downstream of what of what the C-suite over at Disney thinks. And and Stoller makes this point a lot too. That is, from, from a conservative perspective, what that has done um, to our politics has been, from yeah. my perspective, horrific. Right, and the, this, the wave of consolidation uh, that Disney was a, was a huge part of is, is the thing that has created this, this congressional pushback, which I wonder, and I'm curious for your take on this, I wonder if the kind of tech stock crash mm-hmm has taken a lot of the gas out of it. Like Facebook doesn't seem like the behemoth and the the, the monster anymore in the in, in the eyes some in the public I would imagine where you know several years ago when you're starting the drafting of this bill. Now they still own WhatsApp, they still like they're yeah. they're still an absolute behemoth. Yep. Um, and the the I don't think the regulation the antitrust enforcement is any less any less relevant, but I wonder if kind of publicly, politically, the collapse has led people to say, well, I guess Facebook took care of itself. Zuckerberg broke up Facebook. I mean, their mergers have already happened and there's no real- You could unwind them. But there's been no real movement on that front. That's the thing I was going to say. Like, so their mergers have happened, and yeah, a lot of people like Elizabeth Warren or uh, I don't know, some Republicans will say like, break up Facebook. Um, but in terms of like that actually happening and retroactively, sort of, that's one of the things where I probably haven't better seen. off. Uh, like, what, like the companies themselves, WhatsApp, Instagram, like they probably it's, it's it feels like being under that one giant Meta umbrella. Agree has left them. To wither. I agree completely. I mean, it gives them a lot more room in their books to sort of experiment. And, and you know, Meta, for instance, with its its Oculus, like, has taken a, a hit recently, although I'm not as uh, convinced that that's permanent uh, as, as a lot of folks are. I think that technology is much more powerful than mm-hmm. uh, some people realize. And it is already, there's already conversation, actually. Uh, just this week, I was reading a story about how they're they're already working with different workplaces to see how they can integrate. Are we going to have an Oculus integrate. show eventually? How that's going to work? <laughs> I mean, you can watch on the YouTube app on uh, Oculus, but we won't be like all around you. Um, we would have to film with the 360 camera to do that. Uh-huh. Um, but there, there's already like there are already divisions over at Meta working to like integrate this into people's work lives, which is one of the things that should be stopped immediately. Um, all that is to say, they are. I think what Iger doesn't get, but what he he's flirting with, in the same way you're saying, like Republicans are so close to being there in antitrust. Um, Woke corporatists, you're so close to being there. Like, you, your business is not helped by making these sort of like genuflections that are obviously insincere in so many cases. Um, 
the, that is not helpful to your business. People just want to, you know, watch the NFL to watch the NFL. You can still be a good steward of your community and of the country um, and socially responsible without shoving it down people's throats. Uh, but because some people were convinced at the tippy tippy top that they had to do that. Um, yeah. And I think had there been more co- competition uh, in that space in the last five years, I actually think a lot of this stuff, a lot of the kind of cultural strife would have been worked out in the marketplace, but consumers don't have that power. They don't have the power to vote with their wallets right now because what, you're going to boycott Disney? Good luck. Like, good luck. Right. And uh, there was this moment where Elon Musk tried to marshal that that energy. Remember, he said he was going to name and shame all the the corporations that that were pulling their audience away. It's like, eh, not so sure that's going to work. Like the 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 right wing audience on Twitter is probably a little bit older. Like yeah. it's not the it's not the demo that these <laughs> that these corporations <laughs> are going for. They're not going to be browbeaten into actually making ads. It, it was funny because I'd never seen that before. All all the protests at all in the past had always been pressuring companies not to advertise, mm-hmm. not to spend their money on X, Y, or Z. This one, right. this, this one was, right. do spend your money <laughs> well, on this. And speaking of Elon, we should say before we run that uh, he, he actually met with Tim Cook uh, this week after mm-hmm. these reports surfaced, the ones that DeSantis was responding they to. They surfaced from Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, he said, among other things, Musk said, we resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. So all of this sort of came up to the surface on Twitter, which again, it's just such a meta critique of Twitter. Like It makes all of this stuff impossible. But, he met with Tim Cook, resolved their differences, uh, and, and that's everything that played out this week, basically. Also ironic, uh, that Elon Musk would take what maybe was an automated message. Because <laughs> today, for instance, or this this week, you've had a whole bunch of uh, kind of liberals and leftists who had their accounts suspended and created all this like uh, conspiracy theorizing about whether there was some political agenda behind it. It looks like there was a kind of a bot purge and yeah. and they just got swept up in it. Like Dean Baker, this like progressive that. economist. The amount of time- Account suspended. The amount of times people have pitched me stories and this is from the right on like being shadow banned, or it's just like an algorithmic accident. But and it does, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It seems like that's basically what happened to Twitter and Elon yes. Musk. Yeah. <laughs> like to ignore that email, man. You're not getting. You're not. You're not getting kicked <laughs> off of the App Store. They should still be busted up and regulated, though. Yeah, the, absolutely, they should. All right, let's move on to uh, the FBI and the Oath Keepers for the New York Times. Um, it's the, the development, or actually per NBC News, a federal jury in Washington on Tuesday found Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, another member of the far-right organization, guilty of seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol, a victory for the government in a case that involved a rarely used Civil War-era statute. And that Civil War-era statute is is seditious conspiracy was used in this case, obviously, uh, successfully. Three other members of the group were on trial. Uh, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, Thomas Caldwell, all found not guilty on the charge of seditious conspiracy, but they were all five found guilty of obstruction um, and aiding and abetting for what happened on January 6th. And then there's another trial that's starting early this month in December of four other Oath Keepers who were charged in conjunction with Rhodes. Uh, This comes on the heels of (laughs) 
<laughs> what we learned last week that an FBI informant named Greg McWhorter, uh, who was an Oath Keepers vice president, uh, had been secretly reporting to the FBI about the Oath Keepers activities. This is per the New York Times again. In the weeks and months leading up to the Capitol attack, he was called to testify in this trial um, as a defense witness, but had a heart attack on the oh, plane right. on the way. And it was just, uh, he can't testify anymore. He was supposed to testify as a witness for Rhodes. And the New York Times wrote, that's an unusual mo move that suggests Mr. Rhodes' lawyers believe he has information that could have helped Rhodes' case. Um, but what the lawyer ended up saying, he had been taken off a plane when he was traveling to Washington to testify after having a heart attack. Yeah, you just can't make that stuff up. It's like it's, you're writing the script for people to be, uh, to believe every. Everything about everything exactly. when stuff like that happens, but so he so it, it seemed like what the verdict was saying was that they did not believe the jury did not believe that the specific act of sacking the Capitol mm -hmm. was drawn up and executed yep. kind of A to Z. Yep, uh, but that when that opportunity arose, they tactically maneuvered their way into a situation where they could execute on that. Yeah. And were waiting for the word from Trump to you know to to arm themselves and to go for, and to go further than that. And they, and his argument was, "Hey, I was just supporting the president and the president never told me to to arm up." And so we we backed down. One so thing how, come on. One thing that was very bad for their case is that they had a stockpile of weapons in Virginia um, <laughs> immediately. I mean, and, they, and there were messages that were revealed as part of the case um, where they were talking about like very violent things happening to Nancy Pelosi, um, basically saying, you know, this is we're we're it's in war. It's yeah, be revolution. Bloody. Yeah, yeah we're, we're in revolutionary times, similar to what our founding fathers were in. Um, and, you know, the president needs to know that we're ready to like fight. Um, all that kind of stuff. Now, McWhorter would have been an extremely interesting witness in this case mm -hmm. because there's a the open question when we learned uh, also this month that the FBI had as many as eight informants, per the New York Times, uh, inside the Proud Boys in the months before January 6th, as many as eight. And so that's where I'm interested to know my impression reporting on it as it was happening is that it really was this like, awful mob mentality that just snowballed out of control because bad actors were whipping people into a frenzy. Um, it, the, the question of whether this was like actually that anybody had sat aside and architected it, I think McWhorter would have known because he would have been relating that, re relaying that information to the FBI. Yeah. So I would love to know what the FBI knew. We also learned this week that people who have been working for Liz Cheney on the select committee, looking into January 6th, um, this was reported in like CNN, are upset because th she has scuttled and she's a, you know, her spokesperson you know, said that the reports of this were correct, um, information about law enforcement failures on January 6th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they declined to look at that. And that's where it's yeah. like, you're telling me a guy who might be testifying against the FBI, an FBI informant who might have been testifying against the FBI, has a heart attack on his plane on the way to testify. It's very strange, obviously, but the, the broader point is, um, 
that's where those those informants, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, I would be really curious what they knew because I also think it suggests that this was a case of mob mentality that got wildly out of control. It doesn't say, as this, this verdict found, it doesn't mean that people weren't drawing up some plans but a plan to intentionally sack the Capitol. I mean, they may have had very violent, you know, they had a a stockpile of weapons in Virginia. They may have had very violent plans, uh, contingency plans, whatever it was, intentions, whatever it was, um, but specifically to sack the Capitol and to stop the vote. I don't think that was ever the the clear like design of what they were going to do on January 6th, but I do think a lot of them whipped the crowd into a frenzy when they realized it was attainable right. because of law enforcement failures. When you see right. them breaking past the small guards, the small number of guards that they had, throwing that female Capitol Police officer to the ground where mm-hmm. she cracks her head on the back of the steps, they started to feel really emboldened. Yeah, yeah you're right. So, you know, if... If, if they did have detailed, drawn-up plans for, you know, which doors they're going to hit and how they're going to actually get into the Capitol, and they still came out with that tiny amount of, uh, you know, Capitol Police protection, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then that in itself is extraordinarily scandalous. So that, uh, that, that would be why, A, either they're going to, uh, people like Cheney aren't going aren't gonna to look, look into that and aren't going to find the evidence of that, or more likely, I think... People like Rhodes just didn't think it was reasonable to expect that uh, even thousands of people yes. were going to be able to break through the Capitol because yep. they've been to uh, protests in Washington, D.C. There's yep. phalanx after phalanx of, uh, of ar- armed riot police yeah. who, no, it's who, are, no you're not, who you're not going to get through with a, with a bunch of unarmed protesters. It's no easy feat. And uh, that's- but Apparently, uh, nobody, nobody at the FBI or the Capitol Police was checking Facebook or Twitter or Parler or anything else. And we've talked to uh, people who have done some reporting over at The Intercept about what happened in the Gretchen Whitmer case. What we know is that the FBI informant was involved in the organization mm-hmm. of the plot to kidnap Gretchen, kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. And The Intercept's reporting on all of those cases in years past where it was happening to Muslims mm-hmm. um, and the years after 9-11. It's, a, it's an echo of that. Um, and, and that's not to say the FBI organized January 6th. There's an open question as to what the FBI knew was going to happen on January 6th and whether law enforcement should have been much better prepared for what was going to happen on January 6th because McWhorter was a, the vice president of the Oath Keepers. If the Oath Keepers had a specific plan to do this, he would have known. And if they didn't, he would have known, and thus the FBI likely would have known. So it's just a really, really uh, messed up set of circumstances. And of course, this is all being reported in the New York Times now, but if you had said it before the New York Times touched it in the last several months, you were a conspiracy theorist, and as the details have emerged, um, it, it really looks like there was just a colossal failure of law enforcement. Yeah. Ryan, we have your points Coming up next, and they're in our they're they're in my home state of Wisconsin, um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yes, indeed. Today I am talking about your home state of Wisconsin, and specifically Dunn County, which is a Trumpy area on the western side of the state, not far from central Minnesota. 
So this year, Senator Ron Johnson notched a 14-point margin there, roughly the same that Trump put up in 2020. But Dunn County voters also had a unique referendum to vote on, asking them if they thought the federal government ought to fund a nonprofit national health insurance program. It ended up passing 51-49 and ran 11 points ahead of Democratic Governor Tony Evers, who was reelected statewide, and 16 points ahead of Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes, who lost to Johnson. Now, Wisconsin is one of just 10 states left that has yet to accept the Medicaid expansion included in the Affordable Care Act. Now, John Calabrese, a Dunn County Board Supervisor, told me that the toll health insurance takes on the county budget helped persuade his fellow board members to allow the referendum to go forward. The county has roughly 350 employees, he said, and insuring them costs roughly a half million dollars every month. On the day that the county heard arguments about whether or not they should put the measure on the ballot, residents showed up to tell stories of their nightmare experiences either with insurance companies or without insurance. It also happened that the state had just released its annual Health and Human Services report, and a state official was on hand to walk the county lawmakers through the budget. Now, the board's most conservative member is a guy named Larry Bjork. And when it came time for him to question the state official, that's when the tide changed in favor of the health care program. Let's roll a bit of that. Uh, Supervisor Larry Bjork. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I was fortunate enough to serve on Health and Human Services for uh, a number of years and, and uh, are really recognizes the, the talents that Chris has. And she's heard me say many, many times, where does the money go? <laughs> well, it blows my mind when I look at the financial statement, Chris, and we spend 30% 38% of our budget on behavioral health services. And uh, when in health and human services, and we look at where the money goes and we see the money going to other counties for bed space for mental health. Um, I guess my question to you is in listening, to, in, in listening to the presentations from the public today, about um, uh, universal health care. Uh, do you think there would ever be a universal, can the counties get out from underneath some of that 38% of mental health care by a federal program of any sort? So the state HHS official in her answer talks about the details of the various programs for a while. And she also notes that before Obamacare was passed, Affordable Care Act, let's not get partisan here, in the, in the Wisconsin-Dunn County Board, uh, the county was spending about $100,000 a year for uninsured patients at local facilities, whereas that number is now down to about $10,000. So she concludes with this. But in direct answer to your question, if people had affordable health insurance available to them and coverage to get them the care that they needed when it wasn't a crisis or emergency, it seems hard to not conclude that there would be cost savings to that. So on election night, organizers noticed a trend. The first was the obvious one, that the referendum was doing better in the county seat of how do you say it? Menominee? Menominee. Menominee. Okay. It's a town of about 16,000 people than it was doing outside of it. But they also noticed that in, a, that in the small towns where they had taken a day or two to talk to people, the numbers were startling. In Boyceville, Wisconsin, for instance, voters went 239 to 132 for Ron Johnson over Mandela Barnes, but they supported single payer 
by 183 to 171. In Wheeler, Wisconsin, Johnson won 52 votes to Barnes's 27 votes, but the referendum carried by 40 to 37. In Elk Mound, Johnson won 190 to 142, pretty comfortable win there, but National Health Insurance won 184 to 124. So Emily, after I wrote about this referendum for The Intercept, you responded to it uh, by saying this, lack of Republican attention to workable health insurance policy solutions will handicap the GOP for years to come. What did you mean by that? And are Republicans at the top levels kind of recognizing this problem? Or are you shouting into the void here? Shouting into the void. What was interesting is a consultant who works particularly. What's your point today? So Google and YouTube are, according to a new press release, quote, investing in fact-checking. The release announced the company was awarding, in its own words, quote, a $13.2 million grant to the International Fact-Checking Network at the nonprofit Pointer Institute to launch a new global fact-check fund to support their network of 135 fact-checking organizations from 65 countries covering over 80 languages. All right, so this sounds great, right? It sounds like corporate responsibility, like a massive tech company doing what it can to make its products less harmful. This donation basically doubles Pointer's 2021 revenue, according to its 990 form, which reports about 13 million in total revenue last year and about 14.6 million the year before. Alphabet, Google's parent company, brought in some $257 billion in 2021 for what it's worth. This grant is really no sacrifice for Google. It's a shrewd and cynical business move that will give the company more cover for censorship on its platforms, and it will make the media worse. Why? Because the Pointer Institute is one of the most poisonous peddlers of disinformation in all of media, despite being one of the loudest and most sanctimonious critics of it. Under the absurd pretense of nonpartisanship, that's a quote from its 990 actually, Pointer, which operates PolitiFact, undermines the credibility of journalism that cuts against the establishment narrative. Its fact checks are propaganda. They are used by major corporations like Google and Meta, which you'll be surprised to learn, also funds the group to suppress counter-narrative information. Pointer weaponizes its elite clout and neutral pretense to enable big tech censorship. One study on PolitiFact from the conservative group Newsbusters looked at the group's record and found by simple counting that over Biden's first 20 months in office, he had gotten 58 fact checks, while Biden critics had been fact checked 338 times. Overall, this is per Newsbusters, there were 5.8 fact checks of Biden's critics for every one of the president himself. A lot of the problems with PolitiFact stem from what's called selection bias, choosing constantly to fact check every claim from anti-establishment voices and not fact check every claim from, say, high profile Democrats. The fact checks themselves are terrible too, often engaging in these mental gymnastics to give cover to Democrats and engaging in mental gymnastics then to undercut conservatives. Back in July, Robbie Suave in Reason walked through how PolitiFact fact checks on mask efficacy, COVID survivability, and even the definition of a recession were misleading at best and flat out wrong at worst. When PolitiFact rated a claim that said, quote, the White House is now trying to protect Joe Biden by changing the definition of the word recession as containing, quote, false information, that claim was then suppressed with disclaimers on Facebook and Instagram, and they rely on Pointer, Pointer to credential official fact-checking organizations. So Mark Zuckerberg outsourced fact-checking to these groups to take some heat off of Meta. 
An analysis published last year in the academic journal Journalism Studies found that out of an 858 sample of PolitiFact fact checks, 33% quote, checked a complex proposition and assigned one truth rating to it. This is problematic as the reader might interpret the truthfulness of an individual claim, the authors wrote, adding that 11% of the sample were fact checks the author deemed uncheckable. Uncheckable, the authors of the study said were uncheckable. Those were defined as statements, quote, whose truthfulness cannot be defined in practice, e.g. claims about the future and vague claims. So that's 44% of the sample in total nearly half of the fact checks then that are utilized by corporate gatekeepers. There are way too many examples to count, but let's look at one more. After the horrific shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde earlier this year, PolitiFact tweeted, quote, beware of misinformation about red flag laws, including critics who say they lack due process, which is not accurate. Another false claim is that the laws allow people with a grudge, such as an ex-spouse, to take guns away. Whatever you think about red flags, even the liberal ACLU has raised concerns in recent years about due process and legislation in both Rhode Island and California. And as the Washington Examiner pointed out, one study of Connecticut found 32% of confiscation orders are ultimately overturned. Again, it does not matter whether you love or hate red flag laws. What matters is that PolitiFact and Pointer present themselves as neutral actors, and then corporations launder that neutrality to suppress the free press. The red flag tweet on its own is clear disinformation. Worse yet, it's disinformation peddled by the self-appointed guardians of accuracy who are weaponized by corporations. It linked to guidelines from Pointer itself on how to cover firearm legislation. Their training materials, which are used by newsrooms around the world, are garbage, and Google is going to help spread those guidelines even further. I would actually have zero issue with all of this if PolitiFact and Pointer didn't claim to be nonpartisan and didn't do so in cooperation with ideologically monopolistic corporate actors. They're the useful idiots of corporate power that doesn't really give a damn about the free press, but they're also totally on the same page as their billionaire benefactors when it comes to certain topics that demand rigorous journalistic scrutiny like COVID and Russian collusion and puberty blockers. This week, when Bob Iger was asked about his stance that Disney on Disney and politics, he gave an answer some conservatives cheered, saying, quote, do I like the company being embroiled in controversy? Of course not. It can be distracting, and it can have a negative impact on the company, and to the extent that I can work to kind of quiet things down, I'm going to do that. But he also said some issues, quote, have been branded political when they're really just about being, quote, a good citizen. That's where we get to a deeper problem. We know the personal is political. Some people disagree with Disney's stance on LGBT issues, and some people think, though, that makes those folks bad citizens. But that question is absolutely a political one. Pointer's guidelines on trans athletes, for instance, are inherently opposed to the stances people on the left, like Tulsi Gabbard, have taken on that issue. Again, whether you agree with that position or not, it doesn't matter. Claiming the mantle of neutrality while taking a specific ideological stance is not healthy to the free press. It is actually wildly counterproductive. Doing all of this with admitted biases, because it is actually subjective, would at least be less destructive but that would require people to acknowledge things they don't see as biases really are. In a 2021 article on PolitiFact, botching a lab leak fact check, Matt Taibbi wrote, quote, when companies dragged fact checking out in public and made it a beast of burden for use in impressing audiences, they defamed the tradition. 
Google just boosted that defamation to the tune of $13 million, and the guardians of the fourth estate over at Pointer are proud to help. Meanwhile, all the politicians who take money from Google, which gives away campaign cash pretty equally, will either complain about the press or wax poetic about how essential it is to a functioning democracy. They're right on that count, of course, but they won't say anything about Google's $13 million grant to make the media worse. Ryan, you might disagree with me on some of that, but it, it is really concerning to me how corporations... About a year and a half ago, the U.S. withdrew fully from Afghanistan as Kabul fell to the Taliban. And one, one of the quiet moves that has had enormous repercussions since then came from the Biden administration when they froze the entire... Uh, reserve reserve fund of the Afghan Central Bank and er, and encouraged uh, the European Union to do the same. So it froze $7 billion of Afghan uh, Central Reserve currency here in, at the New York Federal Reserve and $2 billion over at the EU, which created uh, a, a man-made economic catastrophe, the likes of which you know perhaps hasn't been seen since the, the potato famine in, mm. in, the, in the 19th century. Uh, under, under pressure, the Biden administration, finally, we can uh, put up this element here, finally allowed some of the funds to be distributed uh, to, to what they called uh, a fund for Afghan people, uh, which they set up in Switzerland. Uh, that would be a way of going around the Taliban to try to release some of these funds to help to do what a central bank is supposed to do, which, uh, you know, stabilize, stabilize the currency and do monetary policy. Now, a, a, a board member of the Central Bank of Afghanistan uh, is, is here to join us. This is uh, Shah Mehrabi, who has also uh, been named as the co-chair of uh, the Board of Trustees of the Fund for Afghan People, uh, which, uh, which met just, what, uh, a week or so ago, Dr. Mehrabi? Yes, it was, uh, the meeting took place on Monday, November 21st in Geneva, Switzerland. And so, what what can you tell us about you know the out the outlook uh, for this for this fund and whether it's going to be able to meet the the challenges of the the Afghan economy that were created by the seizure of these funds? The first meeting was uh, there were not substantive issues discussed. Uh, more specifically, uh, the issue of disbursement uh, the it will be discussed in detail later on the policy and procedures. All of that is going to be in, uh, discussed in the next meeting. The first meeting uh, obviously discussed uh, mostly on uh, trying to how to launch this foundation that has been uh, structured uh, in, in Geneva. Most uh, Mostly discussion was on the legal uh, legal services that are provided by, uh, by the Swiss law firm. And then also to make sure that there's a high degree of transparency uh, hiring of an audit firm uh, was the decision was made uh, to hire a particular reliable uh, uh, firm, as well as the decision with regard to hiring someone to do the administrative work, uh, what we call the executive secretary, uh, and also uh, the issue regarding, um, uh, in more specifically, having or constructing a committee. Uh, of Afghan uh, people, what is called advisory committee of Afghan, advisory committee mostly consists of almost all consists of Afghan. So the important issue of disbursement will be discussed later on, as well as what well, we discussed also investments. So another important point was, since uh, the funds in the United States 
uh, based on the decision of uh, of the investment committee of the Afghanistan Bank. They were invested uh, in the portfolio consisted of uh, uh, in, in instruments where it, it really uh, allowed a high rate of return to be earned. And uh, the decision was made where to invest them within the structure of BIS. And, uh, uh, and, and then make certain that we pick up those diverse, uh, at least portfolio, that will continue to allow DAP to uh, earn an Afghan, uh, an Afghan fund to earn a high rate of return on their investment. So in a situation like this where the economic urgency is obviously paramount, what does the timeline look like for the Afghan people? What does the sort of disbursement and investment timeline look like going forward, uh, having you know, gone through that, that first meeting? Uh, when can people start to expect uh, that, that to sort of happen? Okay, the, the important point here is that uh, to pinpoint that none of this fund, the 3.5 plus $36 million interest that was earned on this, none of these funds will be used for humanitarian purposes. I think that's uh, that is, needs to be uh, pointed out uh, clearly, because I think this there's misconception in the mind of many people that this these funds would be used for humanitarian. So it will not be used for that. The main purpose of these particular funds, as I have argued all along, is uh, to be used for uh, price stability and reduction and uh, volatility of exchange rate. I think those those are the main uh, reasons why these funds were uh, managed and uh, invested uh, by the investment committee and the main purpose for why this reserve should be utilized for that, for recapitalization of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the, the purpose of, uh, of the Fund for Afghan People is to protect and preserve uh, in, uh, these funds. Uh, till the decision is made with regard to where should the disbursement be done. Uh, the ultimate goal is to be able to help the economy and how can the economy benefit from this particular fund, but definitely not in the area of, uh, of, of disbursement. It should not be geared to in the areas where the, the burden and responsibility uh, of payment should be at the hands of the Ministry of Finance or equivalent to the Treasury in this country. So, uh, in, in sp more, more specifically, for example, payment of arrears. Uh, that was uh, that uh, the uh, interim Taliban administration already paid the, the, the last uh, arrear for the World Bank uh, in June. Uh, and now the new arrear that is due in December, that negotiation is going on so that they would, as long as they fulfill their particular obligation, then uh, this should not be any need for this particular reserve to be utilized for any other purpose. but. Uh, capitalization of the central bank and for auction purposes to bring about price stability. Yeah, and just to underscore that point for, for people here, I think a lot of people, when they hear uh, humanitarian funds or humanitarian relief, they think good. That must be a good thing. Mm. But but in fact, what the, sit, the situation was such that the Biden administration, by seizing these funds, created this absolutely enormous financial catastrophe, and then to come in on the backside with a couple hundred of million, million dollars to, st to then, you know, feed people yeah. or, or do, do humanitarian gestures is A, a little bit cynical, but B, not long-term thinking it's because- a yeah, it, it, yeah, right. It's a Band-Aid and eventually you run out of Band-Aids. The reserve funds would be gone and then you still have the, you'd still have the, 
the fundamental economic crisis going on. But uh, I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about how the the, the price stability crisis or, and, and some of the other volatility uh, may have been... A, alleviating a little bit what you were recently in in Kabul what like what is what is Kabul like yeah. kind of today I, I think the, the, this is a good question I was very surprised and happy to see uh, the, the, an environment that was safe uh, at least uh, clearly by you know in, by, uh, by my observance remember this is anecdotal I didn't spend that my time I was mostly in meeting but at least when I when I was driven uh, to different uh, meetings uh, I saw people uh, were very uh, comfortable in roaming around uh, without uh, uh, at least what Western media has uh, at least categorized as unsafe environment. I did not see that. I saw uh, cordial greetings by the by the police, uh, much cordial than uh, encounter that were done uh, by the prior administration police. Uh, and then also in my hotel, I saw many women who were eating breakfast, young women, as well as during the night, many who, uh, women with their family, children, and husband who were eating dinner. So those are some of the, and also, obviously, the girls' issue needs to be resolved and the schools need to be open. Uh, and clearly, I, I raised that particular issue at the Ministry of Finance, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at a higher level, and they uh, clearly, uh, at least, uh, that they are working on on coming up with uh, with a path to uh, open this, and uh, most of the bottleneck has been created as a result of uh, uh, at least not completion of some of the construction of new uh, school building that there that's are currently underway. At least that was explanation given to me overall. And, and as far as the safety, as a chair of audit committee, as as I've said, uh, our audit department continuously had they have to go ahead and perform audits of the administration and operation of the not only the central uh, office of the Amazon Bank, but also all the uh, branches that exist in 34 provinces. They could not do that in the prior administration. Now they are freely able to go ahead and, and uh, visit all these branches and make certain that the laws and regulation of the Amazon Banks are followed and adhered to. So that was another important point. The other thing that I saw there was a lot of construction was going on. I usually uh, uh, walk uh, in the morning or jog in the morning, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see the construction of of the uh, at least uh, the uh, of the park that was in total decay. That they were being uh, asphalted, uh, and work was going on. That they were, they were the necessary repairs were made. And as a matter of fact, the other thing was that. The bathrooms, which is very important, uh, uh, is that they were very clean. I was uh, trying to look at all those areas and some improve. But also the other uh, point that I uh, was somewhat of surprise beside the park construction is the new construction that were going on. And then the old uh, uh, buildings, they were refurbished. So that's another thing that I saw overall beside the fact that uh, there was also less pollution. Uh, there were not those gas guzzlers that existed uh, in the bureaucrats who were driving them. Uh, they were they were all gone. There was a small cars of Toyotas and Hondas that were on uh, streets, but there were not as many. So there was less pollution and there was a clear sky, blue sky, 
that I used to see when I was a child in Afghanistan. And so, obviously, so, those, those, are, those are some of the points. Yeah, go no, ahead. That, no, that's really interesting. A lot of people would hear that and they would think a more, a healthier sort of economy in Afghanistan means a more powerful Taliban and a more pow powerful Taliban may feel more emboldened to encroach on human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Having actually been in Kabul um, and been involved in these negotiations where I'm sure the Biden administration has raised plenty of concerns to that effect, um, what degree of con concern should exist on that question? And it's obviously a really sad sort of situation and, and line to have to walk in general, uh, that people's economic stability um, would then be sort of seen and, and wielded in, in national security terms. Um, but, but what concerns should people have when it comes to that dynamic? Well, th this is my main, uh, uh, at least uh, professional job is to be able to make certain that uh, Afghans do not suffer uh, from paying higher prices for necessary items that uh, they need to have access to. I'm talking about food, uh, oil, uh, sugar, uh, cooking oil, and fuel. Uh, and at this stage, while the prices have are not at the 50, 52% that were existed a few months ago, there has been some reduction. The prices, nevertheless, the prices are some at 27%. That is very high at a time when unemployment is extremely high. So the, 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 the Afghanistan Bank, the central bank, is... Uh, uh, one of the main responsibility of that entity is to be able to make sure that the prices, uh, stability, and the prices come that inflation is reduced, and uh, to make uh, all items available, affordable for people. And that, uh, you know, because inflation hurts uh, most of these people, uh, the women and children, um, who cannot afford to to pay for uh, bread. Uh, and as a matter of fact, many of the bakeries, that's one thing they also noticed was that the bakeries, you saw a lot of women and children who are begging and trying to get access to a piece of bread or those who are purchasing and had the ability to purchase for them to hand out some of the particular, you know, a piece of bread or loaf of bread for them. So while this can be, this will relieve some of the hardship that exists on uh, on Afghan people, I think uh, central bank, has, based on our uh, consultation, has done a fairly good job uh, in terms of auctioning off in the last few months, uh, almost six months, between 13 to 17 million dollars have been auctioned that have brought some degree of stability in the exchange rate to a level where it, the exchange rate of Afghani to dollar is somewhere between 86 to 88. Now it's uh, uh, today was uh, 88.17 and so on. So those are the way that you can uh, reduce the hardship on people, on women, as well as on the, on children. Now, the other part of the, the moving away from the DAB area, then uh, the expenditure in the area of fiscal area, where the Ministry of Finance is responsible, at least they have been addressing the issue of education and health uh, quite uh, vigorously. Uh, they are making the payments and uh, also are, uh, the World Bank 
uh, help with regard to payment to the personnel in the health sector had resumed and that has also been instrumental in reducing some of the hardship on people. And also uh, uh, the cash inflow uh, by UNAMA uh, in United Nations for payment of their employees and other expenses have also brought about some degree of stability in the exchange rate. And did I, did I hear you right that you said that you were talking to top officials at the, the finance minister, top Taliban officials at the finance ministry and that they're, they're moving towards uh, reopening uh, schools for girls? And do they understand that as something of a kind of condition for global acceptance? Is that, is that what's pushing them in that direction? Uh, the, the, the reasons for what, uh, I, I, I do not know the reasoning behind what uh, explanation was given to me with regard to the school's opening. They said that the, we have, we are in the process of trying to construct buildings because there's going to be, uh, schools are, will be segregated. Mm. You will have uh, different schools, uh, segregated school for male and female. And uh, there are two obstacles they said they're confronted with. One is that they're in the process of completing construction of new building. And second, to get the personnel to be able to teach female separately than male. And both of these uh, these uh, tasks takes, take time, takes time, but they are moving. At least this is explanation from Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, is that they are moving in this uh, aggressively and trying to address this issue so the school could open. Hmm. So we'll take it with a grain of salt, but it'd be, that'd be encouraging if that happens. L last quick question. Um, what about the migration crisis? Uh, there had been reports previously of up to a million Afghans fleeing because of the economic crisis. Uh, what's your What's your sense of of what the outflow of migration is, is now? Well, the, the, one of the, there are many reasons for why people migrate. Obviously, the, the there's loss of jobs uh, and unemployment is very high, and uh, that is prompting many people to go to Iran and uh, some to Pakistan. And Iran has been uh, actually sending them back. So there hasn't been uh, clearly uh, uh, a smooth flow of uh, migrant to to uh, to reside in Iran for a long, long period of time. Uh, that is, uh, again, has created a lot of hardship on many families because of lack of job and lack of income that the, the current government cannot provide that the private sector has been not very uh, uh, forthcoming in creating job yet uh, because of the uncertainty in the mind of some and the investment obviously has declined. So there's, and, and another reason for this migration, obviously some are been helped and encouraged by many different groups to move. Uh, out of Afghanistan, uh, in, uh, uh, whether it's United States government or those uh, proxy groups within uh, this country in Europe have also been instrumental in trying to get some people, based on the explanation that I was given, that uh, one of the reasons for brain drain has been because the encouragement by Western uh, countries uh, to allow these people uh, a speedy uh, exit from Afghanistan, and that has created some degree of uh, uh, at least uh, a brain, brain issue within, uh, uh, within certain uh, ministries. Hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Mehrabi is a member of the Central Bank of Afghanistan, co-chair of the Board of Trustees of the Fund for Afghan People, and a professor of economics at Montgomery College here in suburban Maryland. Uh, really, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. 
Thank you very much for inviting me. Good talking to you. So what do you what do you make of that? It 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 feels like so he so so he's in anyway. What, what's I don't want to get ahead of my skis here. What do you think? I think it's really tough because there's a humanitarian crisis that our uh, military operation in Afghanistan uh, absolutely our botched military uh, engagement in Afghanistan over the last at least five years, if not more, uh, exacerbated, and then our our botched exit exacerbated uh, at the same time. I think it is true that an empowered Taliban will be an empowered, hostile power uh, that is oppressive to its own people. And the reports about how the Taliban, um, and and not just in Western media, but the reports about how the Taliban is uh, treating political dissidents, treating women, um, are harrowing. And so I understand why the Biden administration is hesitant in this case. But even though this isn't humanitarian aid, a, a stable functioning economy is a humanitarian cause. Um, yeah. So it, it's incredibly difficult. It's an incredibly difficult situation uh, all the way around. And the way that we handled our military engagement in Afghanistan is is how we got here. Yeah. To, to me, I just feel like it's not, it's not our business. Like it, that I'm glad that we're returning the, the central bank funds, if I think if the Taliban shows any signs that they're going to harbor Al Qaeda terrorists who are going to attack us, like like happened on 9/11, then I, then I think it beco- it very much becomes our business. But if if the if the Taliban is uh, you know is governing in a way that uh, offends our sensibilities. Um, we have ways that we can yeah. you know pressure that we can uh, we can like you know the ways that an empire does. We can tell the World Bank we want Sanctions, to put pressure there. Yeah. And it seems like actually some of that is working. Like if if what if they said true, yeah. to to uh, Rabi is correct, that they're planning on building uh, girls' schools, that the way that they're getting around uh, their, their queasiness around uh, that sexism is that they're going to do separate but equal schools, yeah. um, then, okay, uh, like that's better than that's better than no schools. And, and, and is, it, is it worth a 20-year occupation? Right. Well, right. yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the key question. And you get into, obviously, al-Qaeda um, ter- harboring terrorists, aiding and abetting terrorists is our business because there are no borders anymore, essentially, in this world where you can attack a, a country as a foreign power, not just a rogue agent. You can attack a, a foreign country um, without a military uh, occupation. You can fly planes into buildings. You can uh, do like terrorism on the ground in another country um, without having to have some giant military operation or anything like that. So that does become our business. And I think there's a serious concern that uh, the Taliban will posture to get money um, and to to sort of get all of that situated and then turn. um, And and we don't see any of the promises fulfilled when it comes to anything else. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it is a real concern. Um, I don't think, though, that the money that we froze uh, is, I think the, the right thing to do is obviously unfreeze the funds um, in this case, given given the way that we ended up in this situation with the funds. It reminds me a little bit of uh, when I, I went to uh, Vietnam mm-hmm. in the mid 2000s. So this would have been 30 years after we left, uh, we're booted out. Yeah. And I remember looking around and there's a you know, giant like uh, lit up 
uh, corporate signs yeah. all over their central squares. And like, I remember thinking like, what was this for? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the most frightening thing is all, all the trees were the same height and they looked about 30 years old. Yeah. Like we had just, we just completely, completely denuded uh, the land top to bottom. Uh, and for what? We lost, Viet Cong took over, and they got a functioning con- country. Is it the, the exact country that we would have liked? Hmm. Maybe, maybe not, although the right-wing brutal dictatorship that we were propping up uh, you know, pr- might, not have, uh, you know, d- might not have done any better by the Vietnamese people. But even if they, even if they would, like, what was it for? All those American lives, all those Vietnamese lives, all those Afghan lives, what for? If, if the well, Taliban is gonna take control of the country, and it's going to deliver services in a way that 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 Kabul is stable and that there's and and people are no longer worried about getting their doors kicked in. I, a clip of us went viral one time of uh, you saying something like we, we were talking about this last week, but at the what we were talking about is a tweet that Ilhan Omar had said something Ilhan Omar mm-hmm. had said, and you said like, "Well, wait until you find out who funded the Taliban." Right. And the answer <laughs> to that is like. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time that all of this is, is going down, I think I agreed with it at the time, although some people cut the clip. You can't trust those liberals <laughs> yeah. with those, those uh, clips. <laughs> without my agreement. Um, but that's the, the, the same thing. It's like we have so much culpability in the suffering um, of these people. And that does not mean that their own bad leaders don't share in some of the culpability of those problems, it doesn't mean that America should be dismissed as a force for good, anything like that. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that we do share culpability in what happened. Um, yeah. And Afghanistan and Vietnam both are clear examples of that. Yeah, and our our seizure of those funds has led to people starving to death. Like the, the people that he talked about outside the bakery be, uh, begging for food, like that is a that is a direct result of basically seizing what was the Federal Reserve. We built their Central Bank of Afghanistan, and then we shut it down, and their economy completely collapsed. Prices went absolutely through the roof. Nobody had cash. People's paychecks weren't, uh, people weren't getting paid who were going to work. Things shut down, and and people were were selling kidneys, uh, you know, selling furniture, burning furniture to stay warm. Just uh, absolutely bleak situation. That was a, a man-made economic crisis, and so I'm glad that this money is is starting to flow, and we'll we'll, we'll see if it, it brings about any you know good behavior on behalf of the Taliban, but at least hopefully it can get some bread in the hands of people who are starving. I mean, as of a few years ago, the Washington Post was reporting that CIA produced textbooks were still in use in Afghanistan that were uh, encouraging uh, particular ideology uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, right. still in circulation. They went and, well, Taliban likes those ones. Yeah, they no, went, that's they exactly went back it. And, they went yeah. back and got them. Yeah, yeah. still in circulation. So yeah, Great work, CIA. Yeah, exactly. They just got a wellness, a chief wellness officer, first one. So that should help. Yeah, so, that, so that'll be good. <laughs> anyway, so next week we'll be here a couple times filling in for Crystal and Sagar because they'll be doing their live shows as they remind, right. as they remind you of, right? They're on here, tour. You don't, you don't miss that. Uh, we'll be here, what, Tuesday and Thursday? Something like that. I think. Who knows? Okay. So <laughs> Counterpoints Tuesday, Counterpoints Thursday. This was Counterpoints Friday. That's right. Hope right. everybody has a great weekend. Have a good weekend.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.